Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Agatsu Physical Culture Podcast. My special guest today is Matt Thornton, and Matt is the uh, founder of Straight Blast Gym. For those of you who do jiu-jitsu, train martial arts, um, this is an episode you definitely don't want to miss. If you are a jiu-jitsu student, pay close attention to everything we are going to talk about. If you don't know who Matt is, shame on you. Right, I can tell them that. I can start off right away by by chastising people. Always, always. yeah, always, right? Yeah, uh, I first. Uh, although Matt and I have never had the uh, privilege of meeting, I know we we know some people. We have some kind of friends in common. But I kind of heard your name many many years ago. Um, as you know, you were one of kind of the early black belts in the United States. One of the early guys to to you know get involved in jujitsu and become a black belt, right? Uh, you got your black belt uh, from one of the original Dirty Dozen, right? Correct. Chris Howder, yeah. Yeah, Chris Howder, who I, I've never met Chris, but uh, I could watch his videos of him speak um, literally, I think, for just months straight. He just seems like a guy who has no BS in him whatsoever. Yeah, no, that's, very, that's a very good uh, assessment. Yeah, so, um, so you really, you were an old school guy who I right away started to hear about online and what intrigued me about, um, about the way you taught and the way you spoke was that no nonsense kind of approach, but also as like a, you know, a huge Bruce Lee fan, I kept hearing this, you know, philosophical approach to Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and this no bullshit kind of, you know, we got to test things and we have to explore things, um, you know, philosophy coming out of you. And it was back then, to me, it sounded very unique. And over the years, seeing videos that you put out and seeing people that you've trained, it seems like it's really continued to become this really unique thing. So I wanted to have you on the show. I wanted to make sure that people who are coming into jujitsu now, they know about you, know about your work and uh, where it started and where it's, you know, it's led. So uh, I was doing a little research on you before we, uh, before we got on. And mm -hmm. uh, you originally, your very first exposure, I guess, to martial arts, to fighting was boxing, right? Correct. Yeah. For functional martial arts. Right. Yeah. So for functional martial arts and from boxing, you, you got involved in Jeet Kune Do and, and were quite involved in that. Yes. So, um, I left the military, I was boxing, uh, and I looked up, I intentionally looked for a Jeet Kune Do instructor, and I, and I was motivated by Bruce Lee's philosophy, uh, the kind of pragmatic, utilitarian approach of, of training in all the different ranges. Right. And I had in a, a, enough street fights to know that you can get taken down on the ground, and even if you have some boxing, be in trouble. And I was looking at Jeet Kune Do from the pragmatic standpoint. In hindsight, I can see that at the time, I, what I was hoping to find is kind of what MMA is now. Right. But that's kind of what I was uh, what I was looking for. And uh, I trained through, through progressive fighting systems guys through Vunak uh, lineage. Right. Received an instructor certificate and then moved to Portland where I met a uh, Dan and Asano, a couple Dan and Asano instructors became friends and then um, we opened up a school and I was teaching there when I, when I first ran into Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And so before we get to your first encounter with Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and who that, that person was that exposed it to, which is a great story. But um, you, when you just, you just said you were hoping to find, 
So you went to Jeet Kune Do looking for something in particular. You were hoping to find it. What is it that you found and what didn't you find in Jeet Kune Do? Uh, I found the right rhetoric, but the wrong training method. And I mm. found a lot of hypocrisy. So I saw a lot of hypocrisy in Jeet Kune Do. So if you remember, uh, remember the book that Dan and Asano put out many years ago called Absorb What is Useful? Yes. So I like that book. And in that book, there was side-by-side -side comparisons. Uh, actually, I think some of the photographs was Paul Vanek. Yeah. Where they would, they would compare what they were doing, for example, using boxing hands with their hands up to, you know, like traditional karate. Yeah. And then they would explain the distinction between the two things. And I thought that was very important. To me, that was taking a scientific approach to martial arts. Right. But once you delved into it, what you realized is they would do that with karate, but then they would turn around and train something even more ridiculous from something like Penjok Silat. Right. And that, that would get the pass. And I realized over time a um, couple things. One, they didn't really understand fighting, so they weren't really capable of making the distinction too well between what worked and what didn't work. And they weren't motivated by the same things I was motivated by. Certainly the group of people that – in, in Asano instructors that I knew at that time, weren't motivated by what works in fighting and what doesn't. They were more motivated by climbing the social ladder of, the, of that little world. And um, that just didn't interest me. I wanted, to, I wanted to learn how to fight. I wanted to learn what fighting was. I wanted to learn why some things work and why some things didn't work. I wanted to learn basically what jujitsu offered. Right. So when I first ran into jujitsu, I, I knew immediately that that's, that was my love. Interestingly enough, not everybody knows, but that was also in many ways uh, Chris Howder's background. He was an instructor under Dan and Asano when he first ran into uh, Horian and Hoyce and Hickson and started training in the garage. So also it was another guy who was kind of really looking for, you know, I mean, saying the truth, but, you know, the, the truth of something that, that would work, un uncovering, you know, the, the kind of hidden promise of the martial art, the little guy beating the big guy. Uh, I joke, yes. uh, I was telling somebody I was going to interview you, and they said, oh, what, yo, what's he like? And I said, well, one thing about him is he, if you took a look at him, he's the reason that uh, guys train martial arts, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. You know, so, but it's interesting. I, and what you were saying with the way that they trained, uh, you know, some of the JKD guys, and uh, I, I remember seeing um, uh, old uh, Paul Vunak uh, tapes, and uh, one of the things that he did in one of the demos was he had um, a guy wearing a motorcycle helmet. And he was beating the crap out of him. I'm sure you know yeah. the, the video I'm talking about. And yeah. I remember the way he was beating the crap out of him, looking at him going, oh, that's cool. Because he would come in trapping and elbowing and grab the guy. And I think maybe he might have even thrown a, a bare headbutt against the guy's uh, you know, helmet, which you know, sure. it looked super tough and it looked like a, a lot of badass moves. Um, right. But it was only one guy wearing a helmet. And the other guy wasn't doing anything back to him. Right. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, at the end of the day, it was guys, like you said, the rhetoric was there about, you know, no dissecting the corpse. But they were dissecting the corpse. They just kind of dressed their corpse up a little bit so they could smack it. Yeah. And, and to Paul's credit, of all of Inasano's instructors, I think he was among the most functional. You also had a guy named um, Alfonso Tomas who left Jeet Kune Do and ventured towards Muay Thai. But I never met him. But from what I understand, he was he was also fairly functional. And you had Larry Hartzell, mm -hmm. who by the time I met Grappler, right? Like, yeah. And yeah. I always liked Larry a lot. He was a genuine person. And he had the right idea as well. Unfortunately, by the time Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu really made its way to the United States, he was, I think he was too too injured to train. He had bad hip. Right. 
Um, but but Paul did, to his credit, promote um, jujitsu, and he was a student of Hickson, and he he saw, of course, the value of jujitsu as well. I just don't think that they were ever able to, you know, they were able to absorb what is useful, but they were never able to reject what is useless. They were always hanging on to the hand trapping and the clicking the sticks together. And, and when it became apparent that that stuff didn't work, then they would say that that was self-preservation or self-perfection, whereas the other stuff was self-preservation. Ah, but they would still do it. So they still had their katas. They just, their katas look different. Yeah, they would rationalize it. But that too is, is uh, I believe, a mistake because the self-perfection aspects of martial arts come as a result of the functional training. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the value, the thing that changes people for the better in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is all the hours you spend on the mat with an alive opponent. You know, there's not really a shortcut to that kind of confidence that kind of thing can give students. I've seen it change people's lives, but they can't walk in the door and get it from clicking sticks together. Right. They, they get it from having escaped headlocks over and over again. And, and, and so even on the self-perfection aspect, they missed the point. Mm-hmm. And they were so, just never really able to let go of, of, of the useless. So that intro that you were talking about when you first got exposed really to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, um, it was a, a seminar or was it, uh, it was just... Um, My first exposure? Yeah. I first saw Jiu-Jitsu actually in the 80s um, and Richard Bustillo was yep. traveling around and showing video of uh, what was Vale Tudo fights, mm-hmm. which at the time was, looked like, you know, crazy guys fighting bare knuckle and all that stuff. Um, but interesting. And it was definitely something I was interested in. So that planted a seed of something I was interested in. And then I'm sure you've heard this story before, but Fabio Santos put an ad in the newspaper. Yeah. And this was, this was a couple of years before the first UFC and asked people to come try and beat him up. And he would pay you. Yeah. And I was, I was getting beat up every day at the boxing gym. So I thought, well, I might as well get paid to get beat up. And, uh, you know, the results were predictable. Mm-hmm. UFC won, takedown, mount, rear naked choke. He was super nice. Um, I was amazed. I immediately asked him for lessons. I took a few private lessons with him. Um, and he was my first introduction to jujitsu. And I remember those lessons to this day. They were really valuable. He's a great coach. He then, though, uh, I think about this was probably a little over a year before the first UFC, if if my timeline is correct, Horian hired him to come teach in um, in California because he knew that there was going to be a big flood of students coming in after the first UFC. Right. And so Fabio left, and it was around that same time that I ran into Hickson. And then that solidified it for me. After training with Hickson and seeing what he could do, I knew I had to open up my own school. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't on the same page in terms of values and uh, interest as the other coach. So what was it about uh, that first encounter with Hickson that made or left such an impression? Well, I, I was a box, boxing at the time. I had a lot of respect and a certain amount of uh, – fear for good grapplers because it wasn't a realm I knew and I knew that they were dangerous and I walked into a room filled with judo guys these were a lot of judo black belts and they were lined up on the wall and Hickson was iron manning them he was rolling one after the other and he was tapping them out but he wasn't using his hands it took me a minute to realize he wasn't using his hands and then he saw me (coughs) excuse me and he called me over to roll with him he took one hand out 
said, for you, my big friend, I'll take, I'll use one hand. He didn't need it, but he did. And um, I jumped on him and grabbed his head. Only thing I knew how to do, whatever it was, seconds later, he was me in an arm. And I knew right away. I mean, just, he wasn't breaking a sweat. He wasn't working hard. This wasn't a challenge for him. It was 100% real. None of these guys were letting do anything for all my life. And I went back to the Jeet Kune Do school I was teaching at, and I explained it to and it was a me that just wasn't made them. So it was okay. I and were there guys from the like from the Jeet Kune Do uh, world that you were training with that you know, immediately heard about your experience and were, were drawn to it? Or were people, yes. as you <coughs> often find, you know, even even inside of a group that's supposed to be so open and so looking for um, th exactly this, um, did they kind of go, nah, nah you know? It looks like we're having a little technical problem. Well, that seminar was a PFS guy. Oh, okay. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember his Terry Grant, I believe was his name. Yeah. And he was training with Tom Cruise who was living in Eugene at the time. And Tom Cruise was one of Paul Grunach's guys. And right. He was a Paul, Navy like, SEAL, right? Yeah. Tom Cruise? Was no. A former Navy right. SEAL? No. I don't know. But he, he was with Paul and helped when they okay. did the Navy SEAL training. Oh yeah. Um, and I was training with Tom at the time I would drive down to Eugene. So that's how I, um, uh, learned about or, or learned about Hickson and got, got my introduction to Hickson was through them. And they, Tom was a little bit ahead of me at the time in terms of jujitsu. So I was trying to get as much information from him as I could as well. So they were interested for sure. They were the ones that had him down. And I, I have to say, I have to give credit to the PFS guys. And this comes from Paul. They were more interested in fighting than the Inosano guys were. And mm. Paul and his students definitely understood the value of Brazilian jujitsu. At the time, I don't think uh, Inasano had started training yet with the Machados. And the Inasano guys could not tell the difference between the ones that I spoke to, between what Hickson does and what shoot wrestling was. Mm -hmm. The lock flows and all that, because they didn't understand aliveness. If they'd understood aliveness, Jeet Kune Do wouldn't have looked the way it did. And so they didn't see it. And then also the group that that, that particular group that I was with I don't think they were motivated by learning how to fight anyway. It was never the only time there was ever any sparring or, or fighting was in my classes on Friday. The rest of the time they were doing choreographed one and two step, you know, sparring and clicking sticks together and stuff. Dem right. Fantasy so you've mentioned the word a few times now, aliveness. And mm -hmm. so for people that are listening and even people that are, you know, training jujitsu, and they walk in and, you know, they, they get exposure to what a normal class is in, in whatever academy. It, it varies from academy to academy. But especially if it's their first martial art, um, they might may have no clue what, it, what that means. So what does that mean to you? And what makes that, you know, a key cornerstone to jujitsu or to any effective training? Sure. So the question that motivated me since I was a little kid was what works and what doesn't in fighting. And, you know, when you're, when you think about martial arts, people tend to think about what styles work and what styles don't work. And that was right. a common question in the community at that time, especially prior to the UFC. Sure. 
And what I realized over time through my experience with Jeet Kune Do and, and boxing and the other arts was that the difference between what worked and what didn't work wasn't found in the technique, it was found in the training method. Just like with critical thinking, what matters isn't the conclusion you come to, but the way you arrived at that conclusion, the epistemology is what makes the difference. And the arts that work in fights, what I would call functional martial arts, the ones, the delivery systems we see used today in the UFC, namely boxing, kickboxing, wrestling, judo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, savat, those kind of arts, mm -hmm. what they all have in common is they're all combat sports. And because they're combat sports, they have an opponent process where they're working against resistance, they're working against a, a, an alive opponent. And it's not just one and two steps sparring. To contrast that, you know, you have something like Aikido where somebody pretends to attack with some contrived resistance and it's choreographed and you step out of the way and then you, you throw them and they take a fall for you as opposed to something like Judo where you actually throw someone. Right. And, um, and the mistake people make, I think, even to this day is they will equate aliveness with sparring mm. or they will equate aliveness with full contact. I'm not necessarily talking about sparring or I'm talking about full contact. What I'm talking about is a type of training where it's not choreographed. The resistance, the energy you're getting is, it resembles in some way what you would get in an actual fight against a resisting opponent. And there's a sense of timing. And when you put something into a pattern, you can make it look very cool, which is what fantasy-based martial arts do. A guy throws a punch, he locks it out, you do all your things, your foot sweep, it looks cool. Right. Um, but there's no timing. Uh, the difference, so for example, when you used the analogy earlier of Paul Bunak, there is timing when he's hitting the guy with with the football helmet on or the, the motorcycle helmet yeah. on. So that was a step in the right direction. The difference is that guy's, they're not both wearing helmets. They're not, he's not trying to hit you back the right way. He's just right. a dummy for you. But at least it was a level more functional than putting your wrist together and slapping and doing, you know, some silly Wing Chun trap, which is really where the Inasano guys were just stuck. And, and their version of Kali was essentially the same thing. You'd throw a stick, you'd swing a stick, you'd lock it out, you'd do all your moves. They would always talk about how eventually you would spar. Right. But of course, they never did. And when they did, it just all fell apart and they wound up just going back to what? Kickboxing, wrestling, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And so instead of talking about what arts work and don't work, and making lists, I, what I would do is I would try and explain to people what aliveness is. Timing, energy, motion. It doesn't have to be rough. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu can be very functional, as we know, can be very functional, but you can train it in a gentle way. You can have someone who's 65 training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and still learn how to escape a headlock or, you know, perform an arm lock, be able to defend themselves on the ground. So it doesn't have to be rough it doesn't have to be hard and in sbg everything we do when we talk about drilling is done alive it's not just the rolling that's alive mm -hmm. um, and so that's very important but getting people to understand the difference between aliveness what's alive and what's not alive and what aliveness is i felt was very important because once they understood that then they could no longer be bullshitted by fantasy-based martial arts i think and you can train in a functional martial art you can be an mma Yeah, no, go ahead. Oh, you could be an you could be an MMA fighter and still get fooled by a hokey fantasy-based martial art demonstration, which mm -hmm. happens sometimes, you know. Um, just in the same way that you can be a physicist and get fooled by some cheesy half-rate mentalist magician like Yuri Geller, which happened. Yeah. Because you don't you don't know magic and you don't understand how magic works. So 
aliveness was my way of giving people a bullshit detector for martial arts. Well, I think like the the UFC, the first UFC guys who were training martial arts uh, prior to that. And when that first UFC, I remember when it first aired, I was sitting around with a bunch of, you know, martial artists. We were all waiting for this thing to come on. Half the room thought it was real. Half the room thought this was going to be fake. Nobody thought this could actually be on TV. And uh, like you just said, it's a huge bullshit detector. And uh, it was basically in the martial arts community. And for people that are just starting now, you, they can't possibly imagine what this was like. Because we used to sit and have ridiculous conversations like, well, a karate guy, if he was this belt, who fought a Wing Chun guy. And well, if the Wing Chun guy, right, and we would have these crazy conversations trying to figure out who would win and what really worked, like, right. like you were saying. Um, but I mean, people were passionate about this. This was like religion, you know? Um, yeah. And everyone was convinced that they knew. It's like, well, no, dude, if it was a ninja and he knew this and he was from, you know, like the Ashita Kim lineage, then he could probably, you know, like it was all these crazy things. And then all of a sudden the UFC and everyone went, whoa, like, what just happened? And it was this giant bullshit detector. And then the UFC two and UFC three, the bullshit detector just kept going off. And I know I remember, you know, when they first introduced the little pre clips of the fighters to kind of show like their, their style. And uh, they had like a few of the pressure point guys coming in and they would show like all the stuff they were going to do in the ring. And right. then, you know, they got in the ring and they, would make, they were making these interesting type of fists where the one knuckle was sticking out. And I remember one guy was just going nuts, whacking a guy who got the clinch. I think maybe it was Remco Pardul who got the clinch. He was a judo guy. He got the Ooh. clinch on a guy. The guy was doing all the pressure points to his neck. But I guess Remco hadn't been told that it, that's supposed to knock him out. And he just picked this right. guy up and slammed him and beat him unconscious. And all of a sudden, yeah. all the things that people had been fed for years in movies and became part of our belief system about fighting and about martial arts got turned on its head and that was super exciting and I, that's what drew people to jujitsu and that's what helped the jujitsu explosion um yeah. i went away from jujitsu for a while and when i came back i was shocked <laughs> to say the least about what's happened in the last few years mm -hmm. and uh like some things change for the better, I think. Like you just said, a great thing. Jiu-Jitsu doesn't have to be rough. It was very rough when I started. And getting injured was a weekly thing. I mean, people really, like, higher belts mercilessly beat lower belts. It was like you defend the belt. And uh, that's not the best way to learn. And it's not the best way to share. And it's not the best way to have a community. So things like that change for the better. But one of the things I wanted to ask you in terms of all the stuff we're talking about, what the fuck happened to Brazilian jiu-jitsu in the last few years? Because some of those things are good, but some things like the aliveness, and you said it, aliveness is not just sparring. I've been to some schools where there's a shit ton of sparring. There's well, sparring every class. Well, but what they're doing and what you know, karate guys are doing and other guys are doing doesn't look very different to me anymore. That's not the jujitsu that, you know, beat the crap out of all these other martial arts or the jujitsu guys were fighting, uh, you know, in Brazil on the street with. It, it, jujitsu in a lot of places has changed dramatically. Right. So what, what happened? <laughs> like, how did the UFC and those early days uh, and the big bullshit detector, how did that not work? How, how have we gone back to the bullshito days? Yeah, 
Well, um, I think there's a couple factors there. So the first one is a very common teaching paradigm in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is for the students to come in and sit down on the mat. The instructor then teaches a series of techniques, which if you're lucky are somehow related. So it's like a chain link of techniques. You do this, person responds this way, you do this, person responds this way. Everybody practices it with some repetitions without resistance. And then it's, it's game time. Everybody rolls, right. touch hands and rolls. That, and what's missing there is this, this, this centerpiece that should occur between learning the technique and sparring. There should be drilling. And the drilling should be done with aliveness. This is what wrestlers do. But Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, oftentimes, they're, just, they just, they're teaching as taught. Mm. And they're teaching in a pattern that, that uh, is more akin to, as you said, traditional martial arts than it is a combat sport. I do think that's changing. The MMA schools can't train that way. Um, but even there, sometimes I'll go in and I'll say, here, here's, a, here's, a, here's some movements. Uh, and they link them together and then they get in the cage and they spar. So at the gym, the majority of what we do in SBG is, is the middle part, the sparring part. And what's important there is the sparring part is done with aliveness. So you teach someone, for example, you show them how to get out of a headlock. They practice it without resistance, but then it's time to go back, have someone hold them in a headlock and really try and hold them with adaptive resistance. So you right. dial the resistance up or down, depending on how well the student's doing. And then they escape over and over again. But it's not repetition without resistance. It's repeti- It's an alive repetition. And so that, that way they acquire the timing. And then they spar. Maybe they start in that position and then wrestle to submission. And now there's a link between the technique they taught that, that was taught that day in class and the sparring that is very absent, often absent in some uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu schools. So that's one aspect of it. Sure. I think that's a, that's a result of them just not knowing how to teach. Mm-hmm. Because knowing how to do the sport doesn't mean you know how to teach. 100%, yeah. And a lot of times the worst coaches are the best players. Yes. Because they didn't have to think about what they're doing that much. So that's part of it. The other part of it is just a kind of a, a specialization that I think is a natural evolution of our sport where there's going to be some schools that are just completely focused on IBJJF. And so the art then is going to the art is going to evolve under the pressures of that environment uh, to win in that environment which may not always match well with some guy that's 30 pounds heavier than you and can punch and kick you in the face the way early jujitsu was right and and so um, there are those two aspects i think and when you get both of them together you get a school that just teaches a chain of techniques and then everybody rolls and they're focused this is primarily a, you can wind up in a situation where the jujitsu over a period of time really doesn't have that much application to fighting. That said, I, it's still going to be light years ahead of somebody that's training in Japanese jujitsu or Wing Chun or, you know, Kali or any of the, the, the fantasy based arts, but it's not going to be the same kind of functional jujitsu that you and I learned back in the day. Yeah. It's uh, best of the worst, right? Yeah, exactly. If, if, if my sister, if I was going to send my sister to do something, I'd still send her to do that over, mm-hmm. you know, other stuff. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a shame. And uh, it's a strange debate because oftentimes you'll see people trying to discuss this online. Just like you said, you might have some schools that are very sport focused. And uh, again, just kind of like uh, religion, people get, you know, if you say the slightest thing against what they might be doing or the way that they're doing it, 
yeah. they get completely and utterly irrational and uh, you know and crazy like yeah. you know oh you're saying like this so-and-so world champion wouldn't be able to defend himself in the street it's like no i'm saying that maybe the way that they train is not the optimal way for the general public to train for self-defense right. um you know a super athletic very yoked out guy or girl um who's used to being roughed around uh yeah i'm sure they're better off uh you know self-defense than most people uh, they're tough you know yeah. um but i wouldn't train you know anyone in my family that way you know um i think there's better ways to go about doing it and i think a lot of what you see online nowadays with the kind of the old school guys trying to preserve the fighting components of this and uh the you know the sport versus self-defense debate it, it it shouldn't even really exist as a debate it's it's a bit silly um and it looks like straight blast gyms especially the way you kind of you know have things laid out it's something that if somebody wants to move in a certain direction because you have a lot of guys that compete in different things you have guys that are using this aliveness and this approach to training um you know for mma and hot very high at the highest levels being incredibly successful um uh, you also have people that are competing in in you know just sport bjj and again you know at the highest levels and very successful and i'm sure mm -hmm. you also have the people that come in and like i don't want to compete in anything i just want to train you know jujitsu and maybe i want to learn some striking and stuff and i want to be able to protect myself so there's right. obviously a method <laughs> and an approach that will allow you to participate in all the different things and have the skills to defend yourself and also let you go play if you want to play in in that arena um so people really can have it all mm -hmm. um do you think that the people that are kind of getting hung up in this debate are just missing you know like for myself i think they're missing the point um they are missing the point it's uh, it's the same kind of argument about whether gi or no gi i think that misses the point so yeah. you know the training method needs to be alive so that needs to have aliveness and as long as you have that training method then what you're going to if you if form follows function what you're going to end up with is something that will work but the curriculum itself if we talk about the material one of the the other key pieces for what we focus on here at sbg is it has to be fundamental Mm -hmm. And the way I define fundamental is that it, it should transcend bodies, it should transcend venue, it should transcend geography, it should transcend era. So there is a most efficient, and with jujitsu, we really measure, the measuring stick we're using is efficiency, being able to use as little muscle and explosiveness and speed as possible to achieve the outcome, and energy to achieve the outcome is always what mm -hmm. we're after. And so there is going to be a most efficient way to cut off the blood supply to another human's head from a particular position and the technical goal is to find that most efficient way and then pass it on that doesn't change when you put a gi on it it doesn't change when you add strikes it doesn't change if it's in the parking lot or if it's in a cage it doesn't change if it's self-defense or ibjjf so as long as you're focused on the fundamental then you should be you should be able to put some strikes in and be able to do survive and do okay you should be able to defend yourself you should be able to put the gi on you should be able to take the gi off if your game falls apart when you put a gi on or or when you take it off or when somebody slaps you in the face or when you're out in, the, in a parking lot as opposed to on a mat then you probably don't have a, a game that's built around fundamentals mm -hmm. 
Mm. But if I, you I, have a game that's built around fundamentals, you can transcend all those environments. So that's what we try and do. That, I mean, that makes sense. I agree with everything you're saying. And uh, so I'm wondering, why are we not seeing that when we look at competitions and when we look at some of the top, you know, argu arguably some of the, the quote unquote greatest jujitsu people in the world right now? Um, mm -hmm. From from my perspective, when you're when I look at it, I'm not seeing the efficiency you're talking about. I'm seeing super athletes facing other super athletes and trying to beat the crap out of each other. Yeah, no, I, th I think if you, I mean, if you look at somebody like Hodger as an example, mm -hmm. I know he's not the most current, current competitor, but he's not, not too far off. He's very efficient. Um, and, and at the core, most of Hoffa Mendez is another one. At the yeah. core, their jujitsu, anybody who's jujitsu is, is spectacular and their, their jujitsu is spectacular. Sure. At their core is going to be efficient and have good fundamentals. But why I think you see, um, a lack of fundamentals in teaching often in the schools, which is definitely true, I think, goes back to what I was talking about before. It goes back to the teaching method. Mm. So what the coaches will do is they will teach a chain of techniques, and usually it's something that they themselves are good at. So they wind up teaching their own game, right? So here's a sweep, and then the person encounters. And when they counter, I like to do this. And right. then they show the submission. And then everybody rolls. As opposed to what are the fundamental key aspects of base posture pressure and connection from this particular position that makes this position work for everybody mm -hmm. now make this position work for 130 pound female as well as a 260 pound yoked out athlete and when you understand that aspect of it which usually comes down to base posture connection and pressure you teach a room kinds of people other people people male female black belt white belt and the material can be essentially the same and everybody can grow and, and get something out of that class. Mm -hmm. That's what I try and do when I teach. I think that, uh, but here's to do that. Some of the guys that come from Hicks, like Henry Aikens, mm -hmm. um, are good models of that. The other jiu-jitsu schools, A, they may not necessarily know the fundamentals that far in, in depth. And B, again, going back to this kind of lazy teaching method, they just teach what they they're, they're, they do, sure. and they just teach chains of technique. They don't yeah. really dive into the positional work. And and, um, and over time, what happens is, if that's the way you learned, that's what you know. If, if, I, if, and if you say, well, what really does define, why does Hodger's mount work so much better than, name another black, typical black belt's mount? Sure. What is he doing physically? with his posture, with his weight, with his connection to his opponent, that makes it so hard for people to escape. So he can keep getting that cross collar choke over and over again. Yeah. How many people even know that? Um, and, and so instead they're going to go on to worm guard or whatever the newest thing is that the newest competitor, there's, there's fads, you know, they go through jujitsu sure. like everything else, whatever the newest fad is, they're going to pick up the videos and teach that in their class and, and the material just kind of gets skipped over. I don't want to, I don't mean to be too derogatory about other martial arts schools either because whatever floats your boat. Right. And the way I've always looked at it is that just leaves a bigger market share for us. Yeah, no, that's true. 
and but there's also something to be said for if somebody's looking for a particular thing just straight up saying what you believe about it you know like uh i would always have this problem i remember years ago and you know i was giving fitness seminars and somebody would ask me about you know someone else who's getting a name building a name for themselves and i happen to know the person and I, let's say i knew that they were the devil you know and just like lying horrible human being and you know uh, nobody I, I would want to spend two minutes in a room with. And uh, someone would ask me, hey, I'm thinking about going to so-and-so seminar. And then I wouldn't say anything because in the name of being, you know, kind of politically correct and trying to look professional and I don't want to be that guy, I wouldn't say anything. And then, you know, inevitably this student of mine would go train with this person and then later come back and tell me like, oh, this person's horrible. What an egomaniac. I, I couldn't, you know, and it's like, well, I could have saved them a ton of money, a ton of time and a ton of everything. Um, so I kind of have like a general rule now where I'll tell people, I'm like, uh, look, I don't like to say anything bad about anybody. Um, but if you ask me a direct question and I, I happen to know this is not a great idea, uh, I'll, I'll say what I, what I think. And, uh, if people think I'm being a jerk, then I can live with that. Um, so it's the same thing with martial arts. If somebody says, Hey, I love doing this martial art. And I say, well, that's awesome. I'm sure you got a lot out of it. And you know, that's great. And if you tell me, uh, it's, it's the shit. It's awesome for self-defense and it's like the best fighting system in the world. And, and if I think, uh, no, and, uh, I wouldn't send my family to do that, then, uh, I don't mind telling you no. And, you know, um, yeah, I don't think you should send your kids to it or this or that. Cause at the end of the day, if it's something that's going to be a really important outcome, like something you're, you're hanging your life on, um, I, if, if I got an opinion, I got to just be honest about the opinion. Right. And, uh, that's the one thing I noticed, like with all your posts and everything that you put out, you know, and, um, you know, maybe some of that you, you always had that or you had that also from, you know, training with Chris or you know, maybe like attracts like, um, you know, there always seems to be no bullshit in it. Um, and with all the stuff that we're talking about preserving, you mentioned Henry, Henry's my teacher. So, uh, oh, good. Yeah, yeah, I was very fortunate that I, I told Henry this story and I, I told it recently, I was just at a camp with Henry in Vegas because people were asking me how I found Henry. And I told him, I said, well, I found Henry from one of his cheesy uh, ads on Facebook. And, uh, you know, I, I even told Henry that when I saw him, I said, well, I thought your ad was cheesy, but I was curious enough to pull the trigger on something. Mm -hmm. And when I first watched mm -hmm. a few of his videos, I thought he didn't know what he was talking about because I had trained with a lot of, you know, very famous, very competent martial artists over the years, a lot of great mm -hmm. jujitsu people. And he was saying the opposite of what I had been taught in some of those videos. So I'm like, wow, Hickson right. black belt doesn't know anything about jujitsu. But I had spent my money, so I was like, wow, yeah. I better try and do some of this crap, even though I know it's wrong, um, you right. know? And I'll try and be a good student. I'm going to try and do this bad stuff the best that I can. And then I went yeah. to roll and unfortunately tapped out some black belts with it. And yeah. that caused a huge problem for me because then when I went home, I saw my girlfriend and I said, shit. And she's like, what? And I'm like, I tried that guy's stuff that I thought was all stupid. And she goes, and? And I said, every bit of it worked mm -hmm. and it worked really mm -hmm. easily. And if uh, he's right about that, I might be wrong about everything. So we have to go to California now and meet this guy. And uh, yeah, yeah the, the rest is history. So um, yeah. And you know, Henry, I think like you said, like, you know, Henry and, and some of uh, Hickson's other guys like that, they're doing a really good job. I know Henry is, you know, as sincere as they come about really trying to be of service he's trying to be of service to people he's trying to preserve the jiu-jitsu that he was taught and also in the particular way that he shares it 
um, because it, there is a particular way. I mean, mm-hmm. you train with Hickson. Yeah, he's a Hick, uh, Henry's a Hickson Gracie black belt, and he's teaching what Hickson taught him. But he has his unique way of explaining it, which I think is amazing. He he can make things that are very complex seem very simple, sure. and he really lets you feel like you have a, a blueprint, you know, a very clear blueprint Absolutely. that that, like you said, works for you know everyone in the room from the athletic to the you know very weak right um and i think that's great and i i think also from what i see with the straight blast gyms you've made a very concerted effort and i wouldn't say it's like you're not doing it like it's it's hard to make us to to kind of stylize and you know put information into you know jujitsu doesn't fit into a box even though like we said there are fundamentals right but you know, I mean, there's a whiteboard behind you as we're talking. If you want to look at your website, you can see that this is a studious approach to uh, teaching and transmitting the information. You seem to be putting in a tremendous amount of effort into um, putting together a chronicle and some sort of, you know, um, thing that really can be passed on um, to preserve yeah. uh, the essence of jujitsu and jujitsu as a fighting art. So how is Straight Blast Gym doing that? And do you see that as kind of your mission with Straight Blast Gym and its affiliates? Yeah. So, so um, fortunately, my I received my blue belt from Hickson, and mm-hmm. and I didn't get to spend much time with him. But the time I did spend with him had a huge impact on me because it came at the very beginning of my jujitsu career, and it was really the only thing I had for the first three or four years that I trained until I met Chris. And my idea of aliveness, so the way I describe aliveness, I've mentioned this to people before, but people often ask me, like, where did you get aliveness from? It actually came from Hickson. It came from something I heard Hickson say that a light bulb just immediately went out off the head when he was talking about timing and how you take one part of jujitsu. And I think in the, in the example he was using, it was a triangle. Mm-hmm. And you keep going back to that place and going back to that place and, and, and making the window smaller and smaller by working with resistance. And it was so obvious to me as he was explaining that that's it. That's why jujitsu works. That's why these other combat sports work. That's what's missing from these fantasy based arts. And so he had a major impact on me in the very beginning and the way I think about jujitsu and the way I think about fighting. He also had a major impact on Chris. He was Chris's first instructor. Uh, and the reason why Chris ended up going with Machados as opposed to with Hickson was just the way the weird happenings of, of what went on in Horian's garage when the family had their big dispute and everybody went different ways. The students kind of got divided up, you know, mm-hmm. and he just happened to go with Hegan. He liked Hegan. He happened to go with Hegan because that was the guy that gave him his last lesson. Right. Um, but my goal with fighting from the very beginning, even prior to my introduction to jujitsu, was to understand what works and what doesn't work in a fight. That was my initial interest as a child. That was my interest when I was boxing. That was my interest when I started martial arts. That was my interest with jujitsu. It's my interest now. That's that's what's fascinated me. It hasn't for me it hasn't been about competition. It hasn't been about one piece of fighting. It's been that big question. And along the way, that evolved into finding better and better ways to teach people martial arts, ways that are more healthy, um, and taking a scientific approach. And I think that, as you said earlier, like attracts like. All the other coaches that are are affiliated with the gym, of which we have many world-class coaches that have gone on to 
do much bigger things than I have in, in the sport, we all share that. They all take a scientific approach. Um, they are all basically like scientists when it comes to fighting. And we want to be able to pass that on. And then as I've aged, I'm old now, <laughs> but I've seen, you know, generations of students go through the gym and I've seen what a positive thing it can be for people beyond the fighting aspect of it, but just for kids and women and men, what a, what a good life-changing thing, a healthy environment for functional martial arts can be. And then that's also re-energized me to focus on training methods and teaching methods and being able to create a community where we can we can open up the world of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and, and functional fighting to as many people as possible, to, to people from a, all kinds of backgrounds. And, and um, that was one of the things that I had liked when I saw Henry's stuff. You know, when I look on, my, me personally, when I look on the marketplace, there's not many instructors whose material I find that interesting. I don't mean that in an insulting way, but I'm focused, my own focus has always been fundamentals. And as soon as a coach starts teaching something that's not a fundamental, I just kind of bores me. I'm just not mm -hmm. interested in it. Um, and there's guys like Heron Gracie, Hodger, Horse Hickson. Those guys, I, a lot of their material I like. But when I look at Henry, he really hasn't put out anything that I haven't liked. Like pretty much everything he, he teaches is a fundamental. And so it just fits perfectly with the paradigm of what we're doing with SBG. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So now for people that are listening and they're, they're interested in uh, what you do, they're is interested in uh, straight blast gyms. Um, you have uh, gyms in Canada and the United States and all over the world, right? I mean, I'm as I'm looking at you now, you've got a straight blast gym Korea shirt. Um, the best way for them to, yeah. to get more information is to go to straightblastgym.com. Correct. Yeah. We have gyms all over the world. We have a ton of gyms and I Ireland, of course, through John Cavanaugh in yep. the UK, that were uh, thanks to uh, the late Carl Tanswell, Canada, United States, and yeah, straightflashgym.com. We, li we list and Korea, we list all our affiliates there. Yeah, and you give seminars all over the world. I know you're co you're constantly on the move, uh, giving seminars, and you have a big uh, summit uh, every year as well, right, for uh, your affiliates and for students all over the world. Yeah. Yeah, we have a few. So we have a spring camp and we have a fall camp here in the States. And then we have a couple of year, a UK camp and a European camp where the affiliates come together. So we have about four a year. The big ones are the spring and fall here in the United States. Um, and the next one's coming up in a few weeks. Actually, it's in Niagara Falls. Um, and those are fun. And that, that initially started 20 years ago uh, as a way for me to afford to pay for the coaches to come together. And for us to gather a couple times a year, basically to exchange information with each other. Oh, that's and, and it kind of morphed into, um, into these camps that are, uh, that are kind of a big social deal. And in addition to learning and, and having great coaches, there'll be, you know, eight or nine coaches that'll teach during a camp. The, it's just, it becomes a, a social event where students from other SBGs in different parts of the world get to see each other and, and socialize for a couple of days. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, it sounds, it sounds great. Uh, I think anybody who's interested in, uh, you know, in jujitsu and is interested in the martial arts, doing something that uh, will have a big impact on their life and bring a lot to their life. And at the same time, also 
at the end of the day, be something that fundamentally, if they ever needed to use it, they can use, should definitely check out Straight Blast Gyms. And if they get a chance to uh, attend one of your seminars, they should definitely do that. I want to thank you again, Matt, for you know taking the time. I know you're a busy guy. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on and uh, sh- sharing uh, you know your story and also talking a bit about aliveness. Um, hopefully, now when people are training, they they will think about what they're training, the utility of it, um, if they're just sparring or if they're training with aliveness and uh, what it all means. So hopefully we've given uh, people something to think about. Excellent. Thank you for having me, Sean. Thank you very much, man. It was a, an absolute pleasure. Uh, hopefully I'm going to make it out to uh, Portland or I'll make it out to one of your seminars uh, one day and we'll get to uh, meet in person. Anytime, man. You're always welcome. Awesome.